Hi, welcome back to Bookish. My guest this week is the novelist Piers Torday. Piers is one of my very old friends. We were at college together and he directed, I think, every single play I did while I was at Oxford and went on to become a comedy producer and then in his 40s just suddenly bust out a novel, a children's novel, to all of our surprise and yet really no surprise because he's a wonderful writer. He wrote a trilogy that called The Last Wild that went on to win the Guardian Award for Best Children's Book. He's become an incredibly well-respected children's novelist. There's the Wild trilogy, there's uh, There May Be a Castle. He adapted the John Macefield book, The Box of Delights, for the theatre. He's written short stories. He completed his father's novel, The Death of Annal. And P's dad died before he was able to, and Piers took on the extraordinary task of finishing his dad's book, which he did so marvelously and with such accomplishment. Anyway, P happened to be in LA and I was so thrilled to get to see him and to get to sit down and talk about books in a way that we haven't probably since we left Oxford 20 something years ago. And maybe not even then because we were probably too busy trying to figure out what play to do next. Here is Piers talking to me from his hotel room downtown about the five books that shaped him most. Piers Torday, my beloved friend and game guest for the podcast. Thank you so much for doing this. It's a total pleasure. We are sitting in Piers' hotel room at the glamorous Westin in downtown LA with a pretty spectacular view of the 101. You're here for your husband's Shakespeare conference, is that right? I'm here on a work holiday. A work holiday, is that what they're called? It is now. now. (laughs) Um, I am here for the Shakespeare conference, and if you don't know what the Shakespeare conference is, it's the Shakespeare Association of America. Every year has uh, a conference and a different major American city each year. This year it's um, LA. Is this because um, Shakespeare loved America so much? He loved it, as you know. As Came we know. a regular visitor to LA. <laughs> Uh, many of his best plays are set there, so some people <laughs> seem to think. Um, but actually, the majority of Shakespeare scholarship takes place in the US, which was a surprise to me. Uh, really? I think it's mainly because there's so many universities that they're just clearly there's going to be more scholarship here so than in Britain, which is quite a small country with not many universities. More money too. And a lot more money. Yeah. And Will, my husband, works at Shakespeare's Globe in London, and he's the resident research fellow there. So he's coming with his colleague and uh, boss. Not a prestigious job at all. Not a prestigious job at all. And so beneath our feet, hundreds if not thousands of Shakespeare academics, hashtag Shakeass. <laughs> the Shakespeare Association, Shakeass. I'm not even making it up. Uh, so good. Uh, our meeting and talking about all sorts of stuff. And so I have come as a dutiful husband, wife, whatever, but I thought, hey, what a brilliant chance to... When Will went to Atlanta last year, I was not so... I have nothing against Atlanta. It's a fine city, but I don't know any really good old friends living in Atlanta. No. Uh, and in this city, I did. So I came over and... Hallelujah. And also my wonderful agent has said, as you're coming, why not set up some meetings? Because that's what agents do, right? Yeah. So, so I'm doing a bit of work as well. So it feels just lovely. It's a perfect mixture of seeing our friends, 
son. Oh my god, son. Oh my god, son. You have no idea how cold and grey Britain is right now. I do because my mother sends me photos. <laughs> okay. Daily photos yeah, yeah. of just it's, yet more blizzards. It's really miserable and cold and everyone is just fed up. Yeah. And Brexit and the end of the world and <laughs> Russians. And... Not to worry because here it's really cheery. Yeah. Awesome president yeah. and everything's sitting I nicely. I know but then when you come in you see the sun and the palm trees you think oh he's miles away he's on the other side of the country what can go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go yeah. wrong? Yeah. Distant explosions. I can't even I can't even I can't even go there. What I love is that downstairs, just as an aside, I was waiting for you and I was sitting in that strange atrium and uh, the lady sitting next to me was part of your Shakespeare, not yours, Will Shakespeare conference. And she was this very sweet, very sort of proper Indian but English lady with a laminated pass and, and, and it was sort of dangling in her pasta pomodoro and, and she was eating it quite slowly and carefully with a small cup of hot water that I'd listened to her order. And everything was sort of just just so. I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say this, I'm deeply suspicious of people who order cups of hot water. I'm just like, what, what, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? Just put a tea yeah. bag in it. Or yeah. st- stop it. Yeah. And anyway, yeah. but she was eating her pasta pomodoro with her laminated card dangling in it, and the guy wa- and this guy walked past this bearded guy, and he did a double take. Shakespeare? And, no. Uh, <laughs> it was it was Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> he did a double take. Wow. <laughs> no, but it was just such a funny moment, people, because he did a double take, and I thought. Oh God! He's just realised he saw Penny from Lost in the lobby, <laughs> and of course, no. He leaned over to the Shakespeare scholar, and he went, "Why so serious?" And he chucked her under the chin, and then he kept walking. And I just, I just oh, love this moment so how fucking lovely. much. How I lovely. loved it, and I was like, "Why so serious?" Indeed, and yet I love the fact that he asked a Shakespeare scholar why she was serious. I was like, "It's a given on all Shakespeare yeah. scholars serious." Very, but, very. I would think so, but it was just, yeah. anyway, it was a really, really sweet moment and genuinely humbling in the Western lobby. Lovely. Pete, you picked your books. Was it easy? It was really hard because you only gave me five. I know. And no special dispensation. No special dispensation. Anyway. And I am a voracious reader like you, reading since I was dot um and at least that's what it feels like and but it was it wasn't just that it was really hard to choose the books that made me because what do you mean by that and i guess that's kind of the point of your podcast and it's obviously so many people have slightly different take on that Mm. and so i just i had to make some difficult choices and i just really tried to choose some books that not just five books made me but of these five books I can definitely say clearly they have played their part in making me therefore mm. I chose them Yeah. and if I had ten books and fifteen books yeah. and twenty books this would be a very long podcast but yeah. there would be different so these have made aspects of me and they were ones that sprung to mind and they're good books they're all good books they're great books and they're interesting books and they tell a story because they go from when I was little to last year mm. and um, so I thought that would be interesting books to talk about on the basis that that's what we're here to talk about. That is what we're here to talk about. No, I love it. And I, 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 I'm with you. I think it's interesting to interrogate what the um, premise is of the of the show because I, I say glibly, what are the five books that formed you, which takes as an assumption, as a given, that you were formed by books, which isn't, I mean, you know, hopefully if you're on the podcast, it's because you, you, you agree that that's a truth for mm. you. But I think it's interesting to inquire into what that formation means what that actually looks like what you know what that means did it shape choices actual choices did it shape you know moral ones did it shape emotional corners that that one took so 
I mean, some of these books have led to actions. Yeah. So they have an impact in the real world. Uh-huh. Some of them are emotionally formative, uh-huh. and others are imaginatively had an impact on my imagination. So that's kind of why I've chosen them, because how can a book make you? I think all authors hope that some of their books might have an impact in the physical, like, and you know, our calls to action in some way. Mm. You know, even novels are calls to action in some way for people to look at their lives, to think about them, see the world in a different light, mm. not necessarily behave in a different way, but certainly think in a different way. Um, but obviously, that's quite hard to quantify. What are the metrics by which we quantify right. that? They're very opaque. So that's really interesting. I have never heard of a novel phrased in that way, or well, the, the point of a novel being that it's potentially a call to action. I see it. I totally see it. But it's a really intriguing way. And you're right. Of course, it can be as subtle as view your marriage differently, or listen to your children differently, mm. or whatever. It's it, yeah. I mean, they're not. It's not to say uh, that these books should. It's not about being didactic or, or like a self-help book or anything like that. But I think that I think any writer hopes that when people read their book, it's with some effect mm. that you just simply you might shift a conversation on mm. or point the light in a different direction. Mm. That's all. Because unless that's kind of the job, that's our job. Yeah. We don't have any impact any other way. We don't have any impact on any other kind of thinking or policy or unless people go and choose to sit on committees and do all that stuff or right. become campaigners or activists that's certainly a way of looking at books and if you're talking about shaping people I think as a someone who writes books I suppose I was coming at it from the other side like right. are we trying to shape people when make people when we write books right shape meaning impact yeah yeah. yeah and I would now any writer would say oh, I hope I made someone but the biggest compliment possible is to someone to say to go on this podcast and say these are the books that made me because that means that author has, has done that yeah that person. has done their job yeah. yeah I see that yeah it's a lovely way to think of it I hadn't thought of like I said I just hadn't thought of a novel as a call to as a call to action in that way it's a really it's a really provocative statement I like it how did you arrive at the first book the first book that I have if we're going chronologically is The Tale of Squirrel Napkin by Beatrix Potter. Is that the first one you want to talk to? I'm sorry, The Tale of Samuel Whiskers. Tale of Samuel Whiskers, but Squirrel Squirrel Napkin Squirrel Napkin was good. Squirrel Napkin's good and would (laughs) almost do. Um, Tale of Samuel Whiskers, which was also called The Roly Poly Pudding when it was first published in 1908 by Beatrix Potter. Tell me about it. When did you read it? Who read it to you? So the reason I've chosen this book is it's really one of the first books I can remember reading or being read to. My mother who ran a children's bookshop when I was very little loved like many people do loved reading me the Beatrix Potter mm-hmm. books we've still got the beautiful little pocket Frederick Warren editions with her illustrations no Peter Rabbit movie merchandise <laughs> to be seen and why did these books make me because I didn't realise until about last year I was I had to review a biography of Beatrix Potter, a new biography of Beatrix Potter for The Spectator. And it's a terrific book about the life of this extraordinary woman and how she grew up quite a difficult, lonely child, found a diff- had very manipulative and commanding parents mm. who imposed themselves on her. And she found it difficult to form relationships outside this family unit. Mm. And so instead she made friends with the animals 
she could sometimes see from the windows of her huge villa in Kensington in London and she brought home a rabbit that to, to, really is a friend actually called Benjamin not Peter and she clipped its nails and talked to it and, mm-hmm. but also studied it and looked at it and drew it and was fascinated in how animals moved and when I was reading all this about how she had evolved as a child how Beatrix Potter had grown as a child I began to think hang on here is someone me who's certainly made a big portion makes a big portion of their living now and has done for five years about writing about talking animals Mm -hmm. and it's a subject I'm very drawn to and appear to have some kind of fluency in it and I can only think that that in some way goes back to this very early relationship with these stories that my mother used to read me that I think when I got older I sort of dismissed as as you do as you grow them sure. charming a bit childish and a bit something a bit boring even and this one the tale of Samuel Whiskers stands out a bit because Beatrix Potter was a formidable woman not only did she write these books and bear in mind that was still quite unusual you know children's literature as we understand it was in its infancy sure and she not only drew these illustrated them and wrote them herself she got involved in the publishing she even designed the first Peter Rabbit merchandise which was like a sort of using the bristles of a brush for its talent she every detail she stipulated and so she was a woman taking control of her own mm. business when there was a lot of pressure on her to give it up and mm. not do it she then became a sheep farmer she then basically in the Lake District, sing- right? in the Lake District mm. and single-handedly started the national not single-handedly was a major player in starting the National Trust. Mm. So she's not someone... No. I don't think I'd like to sit next to her at dinner. I don't <laughs> think she was necessarily an easy customer, but she was formidable. And therefore, she wasn't really sentimental. And Samuel Whiskers is... It's a pretty... I was pretty scared by it. I mean, there's a pretty terrifying scene about being rolled up in pastry, hence the roly-poly pudding. He's a, he's a little pussy cat, right? Yeah, a, li- a, li- he, yeah. a little pussy cat being rolled up by a rat yeah. to be eaten. You know, big rat and rats are rats are not nice. No, I mean I they're amazing animals, and I put a rat in my book actually who is nice. They are amazing social animals, and they're much nicer than you think. But big rats are quite scary. Yeah. And the idea of a little kitten being rolled up in pastry, there was something in that that was, I found quite, I remember as a child having a little nightmare that it was not Peter Rabbit stealing a carrot from right. father, Farmer McGregor's yeah. garden. But he's rescued by his sisters, isn't he? He is, he is no, the little cat is rescued. It's all, it's all good. It's, a, not a, it's not a Stephen King story. <laughs> uh, that would be something else. <laughs> but it, I remember, do I remember this? Anyway, I'm saying I remember this. Yeah. I'm tracing back a memory of this, that the animals were wonderful and special but not sentimental mm. and that they are red and tooth and claw and that's always informed the way I write about animals I don't yeah. like things that are just unbelievably sentimental about yeah. animals or sort of cutesy and I really underestimated the way Beatrix Potter's stories about animals the way she studied them the way she drew them the way they were in their natural habitat there was a Britishness about them that years later when I came to write my first book about British wildlife how really I think she was there in the background Mm. and I'm not just saying that because she made me therefore because I wrote a book and she wrote about animals and I wrote about animals 
but it's like hang on if you sit down age 38 to write a book and it's about some talking animals and you feel compelled enough to write about that you write a whole book wow man has that been on the pot for yeah has that been on the stove for a long time it's like thanks Beatrix Potter you traumatised me at age three and I've only just now found the voice in my you know early middle age to get out of my system that's interesting have you you reread them I have some of them yeah I have some of them yeah, yeah yeah In order to sort of vindicate your theory, or have you read the guys? I know you go just, to schools and read. Yeah, I mean, just to, 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 just out of curiosity, really. But and and just to also admire the skill, you know, the skill with which she does yeah. it. And you know, there is a reason not Samuel Whiskers, which I I've always got a slight penchant for the the whimsical and the more eccentric than mm-hmm. the mainstream and. and that's what Simon Whiskers is. But Peter Rabbit, which is also part of it. Let's say Beatrix Potter. Because I almost did actually say the collected tales of Beatrix Potter than I thought. No, I, was I would not have let you I was get cheating. away. You can't get danced to the music of time and <laughs> oh, yeah. the collected works of Beatrix uh, Potter. It's cheating. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, they do still sell millions of copies around the world. And there is a reason for that. Yeah. Because they're lovely stories and they're children's first introduction to the... Na- many children's first introduction to the natural world. They are. It's interesting because my little ones, I have the reissued lovely little mini yeah. little individual books of them and I started you know we, I think they were given them one of them got them as a christening ball and not christened my children but anyway when they were born they were given them yeah. and I remember pulling them out dutifully thinking oh it's about time and starting maybe Peter Rabbit and thinking oh my god this is dated beyond measure but more importantly because that part doesn't bother me so much it's so extraordinarily English reading it in LA to my little American children and I'm delighted to explain to my little ones what galoshes are and you know what I don't know Tam Shanter or or, or any of these sort of strange things are but but it was (coughs) it felt unbelievably foreign when I looked at it last that said we pulled Peter Rabbit out recently and we gave that another go and I felt like uh, with me knitting over some of the parts and and glossing over some of the more difficult parts we got through it and they loved it but I felt like oh I'm I I don't know that this is an immediate as immediate a thing no and I don't know if loads I mean whether it's parents buying it because they were brought up and brought up in it, or whether children still love it, the fact that they've released a whole new movie, Peter Rabbit, would seem to suggest there is still an audience yes, for it. Yes, I think so. And I think that, in a way, I suppose the Britishness is part of its enduring appeal. I think there is yeah. something very English. Now that might not always work for the for the young people wherever they are who don't find Britishness such a turn on. Strange thing. Why would they not? Why would they what not? What is the matter with them? Um, how what an eccentric point of view. No, but all your books. I mean, we'll get global about them later. But but I was re- I was struck by how, apart from the Underground Railroad, how English they were. Yeah. That there felt something quintessentially English about all the all of your, as I say, apart from that one, all of your choices. Mm. That is was really clearly conscious on your part and really was interesting to me I, I, I've i known you since we were at Oxford together, we are old friends who have seen each other through all the iterations of our careers and I would not have isolated you as someone who who, who cherished their Englishness 
and I may be wrong in saying that that is why you pick these books, but I was, I was really moved actually by seeing the heart of England in in the books that you were cho- choosing. Yeah, and because I think I, whether I like it or not, I may I may not always like it, but I I am the product of an unbelievably English background yeah. and upbringing and ed- education, and I like to think my social circle is a lot wider now and my views on the world are not necessarily what you would call aligned with the traditional English upbringing I had but you say the books that Mehdi and I the, the books were I think I suppose the way in the book those books the way those books interacted with that background mm. is what has made me and they've interacted in a particular way because they're, they're all the books apart from the last two which are actually both American oh. are are of it are of English, English, but they're having a conversation with it mm. in different ways. Mm-hmm. I think I responded to mm-hmm. whether that's Simon Whiskers or we'll get onto it in the line of beauty, yeah. uh, not line of beauty, um, uh, Library, yeah. sorry. So, and again, not so much particularly conscious of until you asked me to do that. I mean, that's what's so interesting. It wasn't no, like I was walking around going, I'm so English and I read English books. And no, I no, 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 no. I think, I think that's what's interesting. Sit, sit. I think, yeah. I think that's what's interesting about looking at, at the five that you end up picking. I mean, five's a random number. It's just that what's, that's what seems sort of convenient to talk about in, in an hour. Hmm. Or not not painful, anyway. And I, I was struck by mine, too, that I had, you know, these... The, children's book and a recipe book and and uh, and that they were all uh, dead white men that I didn't have a single woman in my mix was was sort of astonishing to me and I wanted to go back and change it mm. or that I didn't have a Latin American that mm. I didn't have a Garcia Marquez that I didn't have mm. any of those was mm. like fuck I, I did it wrong until you realise it's not an assignment it's just what it's uh, just what you are I was horrified that my, my first draft was all white men and I just I had to I could <laughs> I couldn't. I just couldn't. I just thought no. no. You gave it an edit. That's no, so good. No, no. I just, I just thought, come on. Let's talk about your second book, which is the Swimming Pool Library, which is by Alan Hollinghurst and was published in 1988. I'm just going to first off say I was so thrilled to see this on your list, on anyone's list, but on your list. I was just, first of all, hell of fucking luya for someone listing a gay author and a gay protagonist i'm so been hungry to have a conversation about this on this podcast so god bless you for it's it's a wonderful book and there's not many books i reread uh this is one of them we've kind of let now from it wasn't i know you didn't say choose books chronologically but because I did it on this way of like what made yeah. me so start with the children and this is this is a book I first read I think in late adolescence or either between school and university I think between school and university uh-huh. I think. did you take a gap yeah did we yeah, travel yeah, or something I yeah I think so but it was written quite a lot it was 88 it was yeah. Yeah, written a bit before that and I mean I th- realised I was sort of gay end of prep school beginning of public school Specified dates for uh, so which um, so that would have been in the mid eighties, so about eighties so seven eight, eight, eighty eight. So I'm forty four now. No, I just meant how old were you when you realised you were gay? Uh, that would be helpful. Wouldn't it? <laughs> 
Uh, third go lucky drop to your quite <laughs> not very complex question. Uh, I was about 14 or 15. You're right. And when I came out of school at 16. Which, can I just say this? You came out at an all-boys boarding school mm. that you were gay, which just has to be one of the greatest acts of bravery I can think of in the 80s in, in a... well, you're very you're very kind but it it, it, it was more an act of accidental act of stupidity because I I, I told uh, a friend that my feelings and he couldn't handle it and I've attached no blame to him I, and he then told someone else and they both turn out to be gay as, now as it is but that's a different story <laughs> no way um, but I love that but and then the, the secret got out. So then I kind of, but I, but the only bravery was I didn't deny it. I I stuck to my. Well, the, the, he, uh, hence the word bravery. But, that's not the but, only bravery. That is the bravery. But it sounds. But I just knew that's what I was, and so it wasn't really like I just I didn't. I actually didn't have any guilt or anxiety about what it was. I had trouble about how it might be received at I didn't home have, or just at school everywhere yeah. but I didn't have trouble about how I felt I mean this was a very simple no this was AIDS was was still in full throttle sure. and the adverts don't die of ignorance the protests politically a very unfriendly environment age of consent you couldn't have gay sex until you're over 21 there's no, certainly no marriage or civil partnerships I mean heaven yeah. forfend very different time but it's um, still a much more enlightened time than other times Mm -hmm. and so part of this was that in terms of books helped you understand this you were in a funny place because there were sort of coded gay texts Mm -hmm. like say The Importance of Being Earnest Mm -hmm. or Morris which is not that coded but Mm -hmm. by Ian Forster but is not the best novel in the world it's not the best E.M. Forster novel in the world and in fact there are other E.M. Forster novels where the gay desire is more coded and again it's more powerful mm-hmm. and of course there are various increasingly gay books Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin mm, I just a, had that on the podcast right yeah. it's a power it's interesting with one of my other choices but then in the 80s there was lots of sort of gay fiction mm-hmm. and unfortunately a lot of this I don't wish to malign it too much but was just not very well written yeah books that were politically had their heart in the right place were explicit about the gay experience emotionally, sexually but they weren't very good books Yeah, and I bought a few of those in from furtively from the gay section of chain bookstores but the Swimming Pool Library was a book that I didn't even realise was gay until someone t- it would come out when I was a bit young to realise in 88 and it was a very big with all sorts of people not just gay people mm. Anyway, I finally got to read it, as I said, at this age, and it was like, wow, here is someone writing about gay identity and desire in a way that I understand. Mm. And they do it with style, mm. and they do it with profound intelligence, emotional intelligence and understanding. And it was erotic, it was very sexy, not... I mean, it's very explicit, it's not pornographic, it, you know, which was, of course, the other stuff you read at that age, it was beautifully you know sensual and sexual and vivid Mm -hmm. and and it told of a London that I was about to join a London uh, I'm not going to go to university but hey you know I was eager to join and it was a mesmerising and to some degree a sort of fantasy of a world of course doesn't quite exist yeah and I I've always been one for style and I just I think Alan Hollinghurst is the 
the living master stylist, him and Ian McEwan, I think, of the English language. It's so interesting because he reveres Henry James. Yes. Who he yeah. thinks is his is sort of who is who is the other master stylist. Yeah, I mean, he writes mercifully shorter sentences. Yes, thank God. That. Yeah. And this book is one of those classic cross-genre books that it's it's a love story, it's a mystery, mm. it's. It's, it's a sort of it's also partly a, a satire in some ways I mean it's just a profound and it's not just about being gay it's about it's about desire and about literature and about our relationship with the past and it's you know it's one of those books that I think the reason it's a great book is you would never be shorter things to say about it. Yeah, you will never turn a corner and go. We've done that book. Right. There's always something else to be uncovered in it. It's so rich. I I was um I was it's so interesting fun hearing you talk about it because as soon as I saw it on your list the first question I had was how old were you when you read it because mm. I was curious whether you'd read it as soon as it had come out or you know a little later or whether you were already in London when you'd mm. read it. I didn't come to it until I read that The Line of Beauty was the first Hollinghurst novel mm. I knew, which won the book of the Booker, right? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it did. I yeah. think it did. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so then I and The Line of Beauty was so astonishingly complete and exquisite and exquisitely rendered that I ran off to go and find what else I could. So I read The Swimming Pool Library later and certainly much older than you. And it was the first gay, outwardly gay fiction I'd ever read, ever. And I remember being sort of 30 pages in and thinking, this is unbelievable and am I allowed to be reading it? I I questioned my passport to this I question whether as a straight woman I was allowed to and I didn't mean I don't mean sort of in some prurient moral prudish way I felt like this is a world about which I know nothing absolutely nothing and I am being shown it and made to experience it but in the hands of a master as you say with no sense of squeamishness or prudery but but in this elegant ease that he takes you on this young you know aristocratic guy's good-looking charming arguably quite narcissistic boy's journey as he dis- as he is you know having endless sexual experiences and then is ostensibly going to write this older man's biography only to discover that he can't he's too implicated in it because of his family it was it, as you say it has so many layers to it and i finished it thinking this should be this this must not be gay fiction this this must just be fiction this is not yeah and i would never call it gay fiction no i, mean, I think i did at the time uh, that's and what. what was amazing about it was it was it was straight friends or even straight family i think who told me yeah about it it wasn't a book and the book you know the book success speaks for itself it's had it clearly had much better than just a gay sure Readership. No, completely. I, I, I fully own that. That was my, at the time, feeling like, oh, I've discovered a gay piece of fiction, and then later, by the end, realising, no, no, this is... And I think, in a way, just coming back, I suppose, to what books that make you or don't, I think you've hit a, the nail upon the head, which is that he has, and that book, has the ability to open up whole new worlds. Mm. And actually, I may have... You read it older and not gay. I read it younger and was gay. 
not making any difference. Mm. It was opening up a whole new world. Right. And in a way that wasn't, as you say, kind of prurient or sordid or voyeuristic mm. or any of those things. It, it opened up a world and took you into it and gave the world a sense of mystery and complexity mm. that felt truthful. Mm. And suddenly, you know, it's like... It's just one of those books where the scales kind of fall from your eyes mm. and you see... There's no easy answers. It doesn't... But the layers, you know, relationship in the old and young and families and secrets and it's... I think as a young gay man, I just I suddenly had a much bigger sense of, mm. you know, it wasn't just about a world of going to clubs and, you know, because you know when you're a young teenager, you you are quite, you know, other than academic, you are quite single-minded. Of course. And it was I'm really grateful. For, I'm really grateful to him and that book for, it's of creating a sort of fictional space where there was more to being gay than just who you wanted to fuck. Sure. But at the same time, I'm so glad that he described a world that is also about is who we want absolutely, to Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I sort of thought that was what was brilliant about it. And and he made, at a time when it was still so much stuff going on, he made that desire seem, you know, exciting. And yes, sometimes sordid. And yes, sometimes narcissistic mm. and or, or fantasy mm. or unattractive. I'm not... But it is all those things, yeah. right? But what it wasn't was immoral. Yes. You know. That's exactly right. So... Have you reread it? I have. I reread it a couple of years ago, 18 months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still loved it. I'm a bit nervous about rereading sometimes. Because, yes, I know. As we talked about with Beatrix Potter, but it's, it's, he's just such a great writer. Have you read The Sparshall Affair, the new one? Yes. How is yes. it? I didn't... I have to say, I think he's a brilliant writer, that I didn't love it. Yeah. I doesn't, it didn't feel as complete. It felt of some very familiar ground. Mm-hmm. It's all set at Oxford, isn't it? Yeah, it starts at Oxford and then it follows these characters through. It's actually closer to the Thompson Music of Time, actually, than Swimpool Library, I would say. Huh. It's about, again, I mean, his great theme, I think, his real theme, and it is also in the Swimpool Library. I think he would say, I don't know what he would say, but I expect he might say, Do please stop writing about the gay stuff. Because I think it's for him as the nature of art. Right. I think that's what he's obsessed by. Right. If you look at books like The Spell, and The Light, Line, Line of Beauty, which oh, obviously the strangest is aesthetic. Time. I read that. that uh, is that him or was that. Um, Isn't that him? Sarah, I think that might be Sarah. Huh. Oh, no, it is. It is. I think it's him. It is. You are uh, confusing with. Uh, yeah. Which I, I actually enjoyed. It's also about biography. Very similar to Paul Library. It's about writing this biography. Mm. He's really interested in the nature of truth and art, and can art get closer to the truth than mm. object, ob- objective yeah. evidence and experience? And uh, yeah, I mean, that's it right there. I mean, that's so all of his books have that sort of mystery at the heart of them yeah. that he's exploring. And I, I think when I read a Hollinghurst, I just what I love, you know, when I, even in their moments, in the Sparshall affair, which I don't think is his strongest, but he just he nails a human experience, a moment, a way of looking, a way of being, those little details, miniature. And I wish I could give you an example, but miniature human exchanges that you instantly recognise as yeah. being truthful, yeah. and undercurrents in conversation, and and. He does it in a way. We don't just go, oh, yeah, that is what people do. He then sets it in a much bigger picture 
which always always often spans different decades mm. and often has an artistic project, a painting, a biography at the heart of it. And you just suddenly feel connected to your fellow human beings in the most glorious way. Mm. You are just suddenly part of this thing. And it's like that feeling when you turn a corner in an exhibition and a painting and you see a painting in the exhibition and you go, okay, now I get it. No, I, get I get the way this guy sees the world and suddenly I'm seeing what he sees in a different way. Yeah, but you're right, it's a lovely thing. It's a lovely, lovely slash inescapable maybe for him quality to put a piece of art, be it a biography or, or a painting, at the heart of it because that really does connect us. That there, That is that is the transcendent uh, yeah. piece. And all these things I often feel like the painting in the Sparsalt affair. This is a painting painted of someone at college and then you follow their lives and of course they don't go in the direction any of them thought it would do. Right. And yeah, the painting, all the aspirations, feelings, expressions, caught of that, the subject of that painting, this young man then, are sort of just, they haunt the whole book. Mm. And it's a bit similar to the secrets in the biography of the, in the Swimming Pool Library. I mean, that's how art outlives us. Mm. And yet it's often in art that we leave behind, that something truly human is left behind. Right. And I think that's pretty amazing to yeah. feel. Yeah. And I don't just mean the creator of, I don't mean legacy, posterity, the creator of the art, much more than that. Every, what he gets is everyone involved. Right. The whole, you know, when you look at a painting or you read a book of people long dead, you are, that's the only connection we have with different to archaeological remains for example it's the only connection we have to in the interior life and emotional experiences of people who've gone mm. before us I, I think mm-hmm. talking of interior life tell me about dance to the music of time yes it's a good moment to move on um, um, before I start waxing lyrical about interior life no because I, 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 I can do a whole podcast on interior life so I'm really um, but I want to talk about this one while we still have time so a dance to the music of time by Anthony Pohl and that was it's 12 volumes. 12 so volumes. Just sneaking this one in because you're my yeah. friend. Uh, published between 1951 and 1975. And these are books my dad loved and often wanted me to read. And he gave me uh, this set that I read, Dance the Music of Time. You read all of them? I read all of them. I'll tell you why. Okay. It was a TV adaptation, which I didn't watch for some Russell Beale and most people. Just, I have now seen them. It's quite good, but it compressed a lot of the action necessarily. Yes. I was invited to join a book club about 10 years ago and we read various... What we did is we read books from lists. So I think John Carey, the Oxford English professor, had a, a book called Pure Pleasure or something and he listed the most pleasure, 20 most pleasurable novels of the 20th century. Yeah. So we decided to read them and discuss... And we didn't read all of them, but we read a good chunk. Was it pleasurable? Yeah, it was. Some of them were. Some of them yeah. weren't, and I maybe didn't skip the ones or less. Yeah. And then we'd finished that, or we got bored of that, so we watched what we do next. And someone suggested Dance the Music of Time. And it's actually great for a book group because there are 12 volumes, as you said. Yeah. So over a year. Um, oh, we did One Piece as well before that because. This sounds a riot, this book. It, well, it was about getting us to read. It does sound a bit heavy, doesn't it? But it does begin to read books, otherwise, it's just not going to. I knew it was not going to happen. It was right. not going to happen. I was not going to read. Uh, no, I'm, you know, I'm mighty impressed. You know, I'm not I would gonna... love to. I'd love to pitch twelve volumes of Dance Music Time to my Malibu Mountain. Yeah. I'm not do it, do it, and I'm not going to read, uh, you know, Gravity's Rainbow, or whatever, unless someone makes me do it in a book club. So we did it. It was a book. It was a book a month, yeah. and they're actually quite short. 
And the first one, I mean, Anthony Pohl was a member. You know, this is the most English book on my list because he's Hollinghurst writes about people in the establishment, but he's very much slightly poking at it from. Mm-hmm. But Anthony Pohl does poke at it, but from a position of being in the establishment. I mean, he can't get more English than Anthony Pohl. Well, if, he's yes, but if you read his unbelievably tedious and pompous autobiography, which I've tried to do, oh, the first. 40 pages are listing genealogically how he's related to some king. I mean, <laughs> so I love his writing in these books, but I don't think I would have loved we it. We weren't Okay, great. I can but, see it because it was perfect. But he, he was at Eton like me, and then he went to Oxford like me. Wow, wow, look at all us white privileged men. But hey, that was my experience. Yeah. And he starts with that, and he goes on. And in the first book, which begins, it, it begins with a scene of some workman sitting around a hole in the ground a road workman and there's something about the light and the evening and the time of day and these laborers sitting around with a fire they've made this is in this is before the war so this is long this is you know Edwardian times mm. that reminds the writer the narrator Nicholas Jenkins of the Poussin paint, painting that's the music of time and uh, which is in the gallery in Edinburgh which of course is not three labourers but sort of more like so graces mm-hmm. these figures in a circle and this is the theme that kind of runs throughout the whole book this sense of a circle and a dance and he describes basically very simply a series of characters who meet at school and then university and although he wrote these books over time so they can't have been that planned mm. the end of the 60s follows them all through including them some of the main characters unto their deaths mm. through war through marriages divorces affairs careers successful careers stalled careers crimes all sorts of things uh, alcoholism you name it and I define I want to read these books doesn't matter what class if you if you find other people's class and privilege a, a problem then maybe these are the books for you but if you can get past that it's just about life mm. and what's so amazing is and well my husband's read them now we talk about Anthony Pohl moments and an Anthony, mm. dance the music of time moment is we went to have a weekend lunch with friends and we met a nice couple, gay couple who came for lunch, who were musicians. Never met them before. One played the harpsichord, one played the lute. Very nice, lovely. Anyway, a few months later, we're walking on a holiday in the Lake District. And on a whim, I said to Will, oh, should we stop off in this little market town at the end of the walk? Um, we were walking actually kind of Hadrian's Wall. Because I think there's a pretty church we can go and see. And he said, okay. So we parked up, locked the dog in the car went over this church and the guy said oh we're just closing we just come in we just want to have a look there were some pre-Raphaelite windows have a look at it and there in the middle of this beautiful church was this harpsichordist who had met at dinner at lunch months ago and think we'd never see him again mm. giving a harpsichord lesson wow. and I was just like I don't know why but <laughs> sometimes fates bring you together and dance and music time is full of chance encounters mm. and this encounter I have to say didn't have any other consequences and we said how funny and exchange phone numbers and yeah. all the rest of it 
but this book is about how those chance encounters in the dance, the music of time, the dance of life mm. can have profound consequences mm. and nothing is accidental, everything happens for a reason. And the cumulative effect of when you've read 12 books of this stuff, mm. now some of those books are brilliant, some are, some people have their favourites, some are a bit boring, some are more successful, but the cumulative effect of reading this cycle of books is you have a sense of having lived your life. Mm. you start with these school children and you end with them in late middle age or mm. death mm. and you go through every stage of life and because it's you know book after book and people fade in fade out this is in your life sure. friends fade in fade out different sure. people and yet they're all connected through these strands of different experiences that they've all shared together careers lovers places they've lived in things they've done and you just when it finishes the sense of loss and grief not mm. not because I particularly I hope to say loved all these people sure. or wanted to spend that much more time with them. some of them are very objectionable de- de- you know deliberately so but I thought I feel I've you've, you've been just alive. spent a year with them yeah and I feel I've I've done life I've yeah. done I've done that. I've done all those. And because Anthony Pohl wrote them as he was growing older, it's very authentic mm. how people's appetites change, their desires change, their ambitions change, mm. their relationships change, love comes and goes. And yet somehow essentially they remain they the same. They remain the same. Which is the other. And it keeps harking back echoes to things that you know. What's so lovely is you realise, oh, God, that's going back to when they first met. And right. and he picks up on things that happened when these people were schoolchildren yeah. that are still haunting them in some way or not haunting but how good's your memory are you good at holding holding the I, facts or the warts well, or the information because we did this as a book club and so we'd meet at the end of every month and discuss it it yeah. did kind of lock it down a bit yeah sure because everyone shared their own things and and because we did read them like you know I read one and then another we read them in sequence over a year mm. so it really was a present experience and then I watched the TV adaptation so right. now it's a while now since I read it so the, some of the individual moments that particularly resonate are, are gone but it's also brilliant because you just although the world it talks about is mainly political and literary and artistic you just you just see your, there are just echoes of all the types of people you meet mm. all the because we are all types the kinds of we're all individuals but there are kinds of friends there of are course. kinds of colleagues and so on and you just there's so many times I go through life and I think oh I wonder why but this feels like a yeah if if you've ever found yourself at a party where you sort of know people but you don't suddenly for a moment you don't know enough people and you're just on your own mm. not a party where you're like oh I don't really know anyone on the edge but a party where you're suddenly for a moment alone with your glass of wine looking around that that is dance the music of time right you just suddenly find yourself in the middle of life and just for a second you're outside it yeah and you see everything everyone everyone's kind of frozen I have those moments all the time yeah all the time I have those yeah. moments I think they're fascinating I think it's, a, it's an amazing thing to be both within and without uh, yeah. a, a moment at any at yeah. any given moment do you think he's influenced you as a writer it sounds like more as a reader I wish I don't think I've got the skill frankly to do what he did in that way of holding those characters and telling that story it's not what animates it's not it's just because it's not really what animates me right it's not the stories it's not the stories that I have to want to tell but it's and the way it made me is it just it's given me it just gave me a very profound adult sense of life so the swimming pool library was the kind of sexiness and explicitness and but also intellectual bravura of swimming pool library was what 
you know, got me excited in my teens and 20s. I think in my late 30s and 40s, like settling down and like it, it gave me, it began to make me feel like grown up. Yeah. Because of that, it's that sense of a life lived. Yeah. And you see how everything comes around. Yeah. And don't beat up the small stuff because it's all part of the. I'm making it sound, I don't want to make it sound like fridge poetry or like a, a, no, an internet well, not quote because it it's not, it it's not sort of like. It's not one of those vague no, platitudes. No, no, uh, listen, I've, uh, I've had it on a reading list for my whole life and have never got to it, and nothing anyone has ever said has made me want to read it as much as everything I mean, you've just said. So there are huge flaws. I mean, I will, his I'll try it. Female, I mean, it's not great on female characters. And as I said, it, it is a, I totally recognise it's a world of a certain class and certain outlook that perhaps isn't very fashionable now. Right. But... I'm not. Doesn't, I'm not that interested in that, really. I mean, I you could be. You could be if that were all you were ever reading. Yeah. Then that would be one thing. Yeah. But to read, but to read it as one of the books that you're reading. Yeah. Let's talk about your next book, The Sixth Extinction. So this is the only book I'd never heard of, The Sixth Extinction by Elizabeth Colbert, published in 2014. So this is a non-fiction book. It's written by a very eminent American professor, and I read it because I decided I wanted to write books about 10 years ago and I read in a newspaper article or something oh, there'd been a, a wildlife a world wildlife fund report that we had lost over 40% and it's now more of the wildlife on this planet since, since the second world war just since the second world war this is not over some vast geological sure. time in, in living memory you know half the wildlife on this planet had just gone and you know I'm not a biologist or any kind of but as I said I grew up loving animals grew up with animals grew up in the countryside loved stories about animals and I thought that's what I'm I just suddenly thought that's what I'm going to write about I think I struggled to write before because I didn't really have anything to say I didn't Mm. have anything to write about and I suddenly thought no this I'm interested in this so I started looking around for books to read about as I was trying to write this book and trying to write it in between jobs and everything took me about four years and this is one of the books I read and really what this book says is there have been mass extinction events before in the past there was some horrific thing in the something like the I'm going to get this wrong with the Permian Triassic period the extinction which was like million, millions of years ago and basically what happened in long short of it a lot of them there was too much methane in the ocean because they were sort of clogged up and very scientific they were clogged up they were clogged up they were clogged up That's anyway right. they exploded yeah. and caught fire and and volcanoes erupted and basically curtains of fire raked the world mm. and they d- d- devastated life mm. apart from one warthog type creature which lived in a hole <laughs> and for about a million years this single warthog creature was the only animal walking no yeah. no yeah did it build skyscrapers and go to the moon? It went to the moon, it had a massive party. <laughs> it was basically like the extended Tom Cruise's risky business, extended mix. <laughs> it was with a warhog playing air guitar in tighty whities. In tighty whities in Ray Bans. In Ray Bans. In a devastated hellscape of Earth. <laughs> and it's um, just one. Yeah, never mind breaking the vase. <laughs> um, and. <laughs> And what Elizabeth Colbert says is, and she looks at different extinction events like the dinosaurs dying out, and she studies them, and she says the bad news is we are living through one now. Right. But the cause is not oceans of fire or meteorite hitting the earth, it's us. Yeah. We are the 
impacting factor that human population simply by consumption, consuming animals, or land to make food for those animals, Mm -hmm. or destroying the habitats to make homes for us, or removing their prey, Mm -hmm. or in some cases removing their predators even, uh, through pollution, we are are destroying the two and a half million other species who live on this planet. And it is it is bleak, but like all good scientists, she's there are notes of hope in the book. What's her call to action? Well, I can't remember what her specific call to action is, but her her call to action is, I think, essentially to be mindful of this know fact. This, know this is happening. Know this is happening. Yeah, and that's a pretty big one. And my the reason it made me is it put the final pieces of the jigsaw together in, intellectually, not because I was writing about a massive. I was going to write about the permanent Jurassic extinction. But of a book that I wrote called The Last Wild that became three books and it's, it's changed my life and mm. it's it's made me a writer and I speak in schools and go around and I'm here in Hollywood talking about turning some of those books into films and mm-hmm. I've already turned, written a script for the first one. It's complete changed who I am, how I see myself, what I do with my everyday, how fulfilled I feel. How uh, how I feel about myself, and so I have to thank Elizabeth Colbert because that book is it's I'm not it's not a remarkable she's she's a good writer I'm not mm-hmm. going to say it's and I think it's actually been a bit, a bit of a bestseller, but for it me Pulitzer in 2015. So well, there you go. Yeah. Okay, so for me, that's the book which I think has helped. So you had not written this was you read it as part of the research. Though, yeah, well, I might have been the I might have been onto the second book. Yeah, by the second book. It was published in twenty fourteen. Yeah. So I was looking at it thinking, yeah. you you already. Yeah, I'd already started. You'd already started, which makes me only want to backpedal into in, and give you more of the, <laughs> give you more of the responsibility for for your success because you're generously heaping it on her saying she gave it to me but the truth is you'd already written your first no, book I, by the time this came out I had but I think I will say but that she I think may have given you more people may disagree but I think the next two books are better and she gave me that sense of a whole world I wasn't able to, right. I was able to write a trilogy because I was just the first book it came from an article and I did read some other book a lovely book called Extinct, Extinct by Melanie Challenger which was another possibility for this but in the end yeah, this is so funny. It's how I remember things like. Yeah. Uh, but it was definitely the second and third book, and and more than that, you know, I now go into. I can only the only reason I've got confidence is going into schools to talk to kids about this stuff is that one of the books I read is that. Yes. And that informs all my discussions at yes. festivals, and so it's kind of. The um, vertebra of it. Yeah, and yeah. listen, I haven't, I haven't actually read it since 20, 2015, but I, but it just, it's, going back to what we were saying, it kind of changed my worldview. Right. Changed my worldview of who we are and our relationship and what it means to be human and what it means to be animal mm-hmm. and the intersection between those two things, and it's not always a good intersection. Right, and our responsibility. And our responsibility. And like I always say to the kids, I have no answers I don't pretend I'm not a technologist or a scientist mm-hmm. or a policymaker and I, I have nothing but just total respect for people who step up to that plate sure I'm just hoping that one of the kids who reads the books one day may be one of those people yes that would be a win as far as I'm concerned yeah. just, just one or at least lends their voice I mean that's yeah. what I'm thinking about this sort of extraordinary um, you know parkland kids movement resulting in millions and millions of adolescents millennials taking to the streets i feel like 
they're not all in possession of the facts, but they are in possession of enough facts to know that they want to lend their support yeah. to this, that the time has come, that, that it's that enough, enough, yeah. enough of, of gun violence in this country. And I think, you know, if one could galvanise that same sort of response for the ecological disaster that we're living under, that would be Completely. incredible too. But at the same time, you, it takes... Tragically, it takes a fucking horrendous 17 children being gunned down for the umpteenth time in a school. It takes this galvanizing mm-hmm. moment. But what but what has to keep happening is that people like you have to keep going out, seeding this, fertilizing the soil, letting people know, writing your amazing, amazing books that I cannot wait for my kids to be big enough to read. I, I think I'm with you. I, I, I can see how a book like that would change your life and you in turn with your books go on to change other yeah. people's lives with it and I hope it's changed lots I'm sure she has changed lots of lives and she's certainly had an effect on the conversation I fear with environment it will take a parkland yes it will as it were because that's unfortunately human nature when people don't like to act until the yeah. tsunami is about to crash down on the house and that's yeah. always too late yeah. that's sort of wired into our DNA and of course actually she talks about it there are sort of evolutionary reasons why evolutionary reasons why we behave like that it's not it's more efficient to you know it goes way 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 back when to our ancestors who don't run away till the, the forest is actually burning down or there are no fish left in the river they right. just um, we're not denial works really nice denial works really nice we're not great at making long term <laughs> decisions for yeah. at least for long term gain we always make decisions for short term gain I don't I'm yeah. such a long term uh, everything everything I'm I do is so long term everything about, I do is planning for 94 I'm all about what's 2050. happening what am I eating now 2050 That's basically is what I'm all about let's talk about your last book so we have time yeah. we, your last book is The Underground Railroad yeah. by Colson Whitehead which was published in 2016 I was thrilled to see this I think another guest has had it although I quickly thumbed through and couldn't find who the fuck it was so tell me why it made yours so I just wanted to well first of all we are sitting here in America yes and and there wasn't any reason but it's I've read two books that have changed my view of America one is Sitting Over There It's Days of Our Lives by Sebastian Barry which is fantastic but and the other one is this book and it's obviously an extraordinary well and won every prize and it's about that takes very literally the idea of the Underground Railroad, which was a, a sort of unofficial network mm-hmm. of getting uh, slaves out of plantations and into the north, but not necessarily, unfortunately, to freedom or a better life, often mm-hmm. to um, something worse. And what he does is he takes this story and he first of all makes it real. It's just a brilliant piece of, of literary invention that he mm-hmm. makes this a kind of metaphor that a railroad make a literal railroad that ran from you know hidden spots in the south to all points north and it tells the story of this slave this female slave trying to escape a life of Cora of utter I mean as we know but it never doesn't tire restoration the most unbelievable savagery and horror and oppression and sort of genocidal slaughter effectively and follows her journey as she goes on this railroad to the north but actually what he cleverly does is also makes it seems to me to be about the black African American experience and history in America so each level 
is a different version of that going right up to in a sense I think essaying kind of Obama mm-hmm. even though it's with even though it all set in 1866 sure. so it's this amazing book which is part horrifying history lesson immaculately researched it's a gripping story there's a love story it's full of righteous anger it's also wickedly funny mm. it's also a satire on lib- you know sort of white liberal mm-hmm. guilt and guilt various ham-fisted attempts to you know first of all going from controlling and oppressing to then trying to assimilate to then trying to but assimilate the, the good blacks as opposed to the less good blacks mm-hmm. to trying to get on board and be part of the gang to try and join in and you know and it, it just the reason I'm saying it's a book that made me is not only was it fantastic but one of the best books I read the last couple of years and very moving very powerful but it's one of those books that grabs you by the scruff of the neck and wakes you up and shakes you up and I don't want to say that it made me more woke than I was because I'm 44 <laughs> and people who are 44 who say things like woke just, should be put in just, handcuffs and walked out of the door walked out but of yeah, the door but I know what you but mean. it shook me up yeah. and you know I I love America I have a great affinity with it in different bits of many ways spent many friends in New York and here in Los Angeles and all over and I spent a lot of time I came here on my gap year I travelled the whole country there's not many states I haven't been to but in this troubling time in our history and in British history, you know, we are going under a reassessment of our place in history, mm. of empire, of the slaughter done in our name, the oppression done in our name, the stuff that we swallowed as myth that was propaganda. Mm. Some, some fantastic historians in uh, the UK have uncovered how so much of modern day privileged British wealth is built off the backs of plantations mm-hmm. and slavery. Fascinating. And you know, I'm pretty sure that to a degree I probably owe my lucky star in life almost certainly to if you trace the line, I bet you I, I'm not saying I can. Right, right. But right. I bet if I trace the line to inevitably the oppression and misery mm. of some peoples who are still very much oppressed mm. today. Mm. And, you know, the whole and everything we're seeing at the moment from Black Lives Matter to Parkland to Trump. This is this is a book that I just felt managed to, without being set in eighteen sixty six, as I say, without being. It's not a manifesto, book. yeah. It's not a manifesto, but it was a it was a, a brilliant, an angry, powerful book mm. that is of its time, and it's made me in the sense that I've now begun to think. You know, I'm no longer thinking. I hope I'm not longer thinking about Anthony Pohl and Dance Music Time, which is wonderful. Sure. But I'm also, I hope, trying to think about your place in my in the my, my place in the world and, re, and reassessing it. And, yeah. and it's it's done what all those books have done that I've listed. It's a book that's opened up a whole new world, mm. and that world was not just the African American experience and and history and the truth of it, but something about America and by extent the West and. We're living in a time when we thought we had a consensus on who the good guys were and who the policemen were and who had the moral arbitrage over um, sure. world global conflicts. And everything, everything we knew, everything we knew and we understood we knew is in doubt. And that part of that is from unhappy, in my view, upsets mm. and deceit and lies. But part of it 
is from realising the truth. Mm. And the truth is not pretty. The truth is not pretty, and I think that's what to me is interesting about this book, is that it, it doesn't flinch from being outraged while still allowing room for ambiguity in there. There's still there's still shades of grey, if you'll forgive the metaphor, but there are, and yet and yet there's still roiling anger in yeah. it too. I think you know, I was reading about it and it's interesting, I, I came across this quote that Toni Morrison gave when she won the Pulitzer for Beloved and she said you know and I, I don't I didn't write it down but I'll paraphrase it where she says you know you can walk up and down this country and you will find just hundreds and hundreds of monuments to the Civil War where is the monument to what we under what we went through where is the monument to you know four I think in 1850 there were four million slaves in America four million I mean that's a fucking huge number and there are to this there are 80 national parks and monuments to the Civil War and countless fucking little monuments and things Civil War that lasted four years and there is not one monument there's not one place you can go and lay a bouquet of flowers to commemorate slavery and I, I it is and and that's changing and that's emerging but it feels like the depth of this conversation what it requires excavating the reason Tanahasi Coates is as sort of trailblazing as he is and is so insistent in this narrative that we're in at the moment is because he's saying we we can't we can't get to the bottom of fixing the race problem until we are in an authentic conversation about what the past was. We cannot address, that. we cannot move forward until we have done the restitution that's required, the acknowledgement that is required of what the past was. And, it, and it's, I feel this country, and it's interesting because I feel, I feel American after 20 years here and yet I feel completely foreign and outside it in this yeah. area. I don't even particularly identify as English because I'm such a fucking hybrid of Argentine, Scottish, Cuban. So I, I maybe I could have a maybe I have a plantation owner in my house past. It's more likely I have a sort of Latin like American dictator in my fucking past. And but 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 I so so I feel both outside it and. No, not both outside it and I feel inside it in that I'm caught up in the new wave of how how we're going to talk about the past, and yet I feel outside it and feel in that I feel no ownership over this. Yeah. I'm just curious how it unfolds. And I think I agree with you in that it's going to take novels, it's going to take art, it's going to take activism, it's going to take this sort of multi-pronged attack in order to force this conversation <coughs> ahead in order to bring it to the forefront in order to get kids reading wider get english kids reading wider get get internationally get this part of the conversation about what america is and why it is what it is today why this movement's happening yeah and i completely and i think in many ways you know this book is the least connected to my own experience right but it really fucking should be yeah that's it should be connected to my experience and I should be connected to it and that's why you know is that realised I think my biggest reaction on reading ex- emotional reaction on reading the book was shame mm. I felt enormous shame mm. for just so much that has been done deliberate intentional casual otherwise mm. and 
And that's a very humane book. It's not, but it's just, it's the truth. You know, there's that family who take Corinne and Hyda for a bit and they seem like friendly people in a way, but then they're hanging people in the mm. green outside. And I think that's sort of how we are, we are in a way. Mm. It's not enough mm. just to take people in and hide them. Tell me what book nearly made the cut. What book nearly made the cut? A book by you of Noel Hari called uh, Sapiens. It's wonderful. Yeah. I love that. Which has also had a big influence on my worldview and and my writing. Oh, good. Uh, There's power stories. So many. And Emma by Jane Austen. Ah. Just the first time I think I understood what irony was. Uh, (laughs) Which is quite useful. (laughs) Um, uh, Lovely. I love those two. Okay, last question. Desert Island, you get to take one. Which is it? It can be one of the five or it can be another one. Uh, it's going to be Dance the Music of Time. All because, fucking 12 volumes? Yeah, because I'm not going to be bored of that shit, All right. All right. Piers, thank you so much. This is heaven. Thank you. Thank you, darling. Thanks so much for listening to this week's interview. If you like the show, please write us a review on iTunes on the website. It really makes a difference rate us give us some stars let your friends know let your family know tell everyone you can go to the website bookishwithsoniawalga.com if you want to find out about any of the books that you heard about we list there not only the five favorites but every single book that is referenced you can also buy the books through the website and uh, we make a tiny tiny little percentage of whatever you buy through the website so if you are interested please go ahead and click on that you can find us on facebook we have a bookish with sonia walger page you can find us on twitter with at bookish sonia or at soniawalger.com and you could also email me through the info at bookishwithsoniawalga.com page. If you hit on contact, it'll just automatically pop up as an email there. So if you have any ideas for guests that you'd like to hear from or thoughts that you have about the show, please don't hesitate to share them there. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. Enjoy the show.